Welcome to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU addresses that highlight the university's institutional vision. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Jeffrey R. Holland was president of Brigham Young University when he delivered this devotional address titled, Nailing Our Colors to the Mast, on September 10th, 1985. We live in a most remarkable age. The scope and significance and magnificence of the daily events that swirl around us are now so commonplace that we scarcely, scarcely even note their passing. Certainly, we hardly note their presence. Consider, for example, two events of this past week. One week ago this morning, Tuesday, September 3rd, the Space Shuttle Discovery came riding out of a desert sky, barely tinted with the light of sunrise, and landed smoothly, silently on the sands of Edwards Air Force Base, concluding a week-long experience that now seems almost routine in space travel. Does it impress anyone besides me that this 99-ton spaceship has orbited the Earth before, that it repeatedly comes back to land safely, that it picks up yet another payload and will again be launched beyond the Earth's gravity in the days that lie just ahead. Ho-hum. Does it matter to anyone that this piece of man-made magic, after traveling three million miles in space, can touch down on a postage stamp sketched in the dry lake bed of a California desert? a landing strip totally invisible from the Santa Monica Freeway and the Carson City, Nevada frozen yogurt station. (laughs) May I remind you that there are 197 million square miles of surface on the face of this planet onto which you can mistakenly land or sink, as the case may be. What kind of a world is it? Or should I say, what kind of worlds are we about to find in which that kind of technology, that kind of human genius, that kind of masterful modern miracle can send up such a piece of equipment, fly it around a while, and bring it home with more accuracy than you and I find our automobile after a BYU football game. (laughs) Is anyone impressed that on this particular flight, James Van Hoften and William Fisher spent a casual weekend dangling in space, and with their screwdrivers, pliers, baling wire, and two rubber bands, repaired an $85 million CINCOM-3 satellite that had moved lifelessly in orbit since its abortive launch about four months ago. Never mind that there's an errand satellite up there, Chief. E.T. and I will just buck Rogers it up into orbit, find that 20-foot canister somewhere in all the grand immensity of space, sidle up alongside with the old jet pack and have her beeping and flashing again in no time. Easier than a trip to the corner gas station. Columbus I know and Balboa I know. But who are James Van Hoften and William Fisher? Perhaps the amazement of all this is greater for me than it is for you and maybe than it is for most because I'm so mystified and unhandy at technical things. The only project I ever fully completed in my high school shop class was a one-quart tin cup, 
which unfortunately, by the time I was through with it, had a large slash running down the full length of the side. It is very awkward to hold a quart of anything in a tin cup if it is running out onto your pant leg more rapidly than you're pouring the new contents in. I did not get a good grade in that class. I did not get a good grade on that cup. Very early on, I left technically related matters to other folks. So I invite your sense of wonder and appreciation and awe for such a time in which we live. And as we start a new school year at Brigham Young University, I also invite you to give thanks for the God-given blessings and benefits we enjoy routinely, day after day, week after week, in a way that has never been known by anyone anywhere in any other era of the history of all mankind. Mirror, mirror on the wall. We are the fairest of them all. It is in that spirit and with that sense of privilege and advantage that I comment on the rather remarkable circumstances we presently enjoy right here in good old Provo, Utah, Happy Valley, USA. Who would have dreamed in a thousand years of dreaming, that takes us back squarely into the shadow of the Dark Ages, that Brigham Young University would ever have had a national championship football team? and overall athletic programs ranked every year among the top ten in the nation. Where else does a university routinely enter its undergraduate co-eds in the Miss America contest and this year claim the reigning queen? Where else, and the answer of course is nowhere else, has the Egyptian government chosen to work with one American university to exhibit the legendary Ramses II materials? What will it mean for you to be the students to see what your parents never saw and your grandparents never dreamed of. Artifacts from one of the richest and most regal political and cultural dynasties in all of ancient history, a dynasty linked with the wrenching exodus of the children of Israel from the grasp of just such a pharaoh as this. What does it mean for you to have the world's attention focused on your university as we strive to build world peace and enhance international understanding in Jerusalem? perhaps the most war-torn and brutalized piece of geography per square inch on the face of this globe. And of course, all of this says absolutely nothing of the less publicized but often far more important progress being made by the university in every aspect and area of our academic life here together. Who would have dreamed this? Not I, not as a student just 20 years ago, to say nothing of our academic forefathers who struggled just to keep the university alive a hundred years ago. But some have dreamed the dreams, and a few have seen the visions. On Founders Day, five weeks from now, we will have a commemorative reopening of the Carl G. Mazur building on this campus. If you've not had a chance to walk to that lovely corner of our hilltop acreage and see the spectacular job our own physical plant and the construction companies have done with this grand old building, please do so. It was the first building built on what an earlier generation called Temple Hill, when the dreams of a real university and all that it might become were only dreams, and indeed seemed to some only fantasies those many, many years ago. 
where once only that building stood alone on this hill. Now think of over 500 buildings and the absolute splendor of every one of them. Compare the beauty and the capacity and the availability and the cleanliness of any one of these buildings in which we meet, including this one, and then remember this from our struggling First President. With nothing but makeshift facilities and depleted supplies, President Mazur wrote, I'm worn out and sick in spirit. With all my love for this academy, I feel that I owe it to my very life, which is needlessly wearing itself out here in an apparently hopeless task. I feel an obligation to accept any change that will promise opportunities for permanent usefulness. With that, he told his wife and his daughter that because there seemed to be no real support or future for a school here, and because he couldn't earn enough to provide food and raiment for them to pay his debts, he was going to accept a position at the University of Deseret where he could get a regular salary and at least adequately provide for his family. Accordingly, his wife and daughter got things packed and then sat on their trunks for several days until his daughter finally mustered enough courage to ask her father when they were moving. His response was, I've changed my mind. We're not moving. I've had a dream. I have seen Temple Hill filled with buildings, great temples of learning, and I've decided to remain and do my part. Through the generosity of friends like Abraham O. Smoot, work eventually began for a building on University Avenue and Fifth North, what we would have called the old campus or lower campus. Of this period, Carl G. Mazur's son wrote, While the foundation of the new building had been in course of construction, it had been a habit of my father, when at home on a Sabbath morning, to walk up to the grounds and stand and gaze upon the work so far done. Once when he took my sister Eva with him, they stood upon the unfinished foundation, and the child, noticing some portions of the wall crumbling, remarked, Papa, do you think they'll ever finish this building? My child, answered the father, not only this building, but others will stand upon this ground, and not only here, but especially upon that hill yonder, pointing to Temple Hill. Yes, my child, I have seen them all. The new academy building was dedicated on the day in which Carl G. Mazur was to sever his connection with the school to become the Commissioner of Education in Salt Lake City. There was probably never a more impressive sight in the history of this school than the triumphal march of the students up from, to the new building from the old temporary quarters of the ZCMI warehouse, warehouse downtown. Before leaving that warehouse, Professor Mazur had called the students around him, prayed with them, and told them that if they would carry the spirit of their alma mater not only into their new building, but into all their walks of life as well, the Lord would greatly multiply their joys. Following the dedicatory prayer that day, Brother Mazur gave a short farewell address which included this simple statement of philosophy at Brigham Young Academy. When to the students at the beginning of our experimental term, 
the words of the prophet Joseph Smith, that he taught his people correct principles and they governed themselves accordingly, were given as the leading principles of discipline. And when the words of President Brigham Young, that neither the alphabet nor the multiplication tables were to be taught without the Spirit of God, were given as the mainspring of all teaching, then the orientation for the course of this educational system inaugurated by the foundation of the academy was made, and any deviation from it would have led to disastrous results. And therefore, the Brigham Young Academy has nailed her colors to the mast. In a month, when we will pay tribute to Carl G. Mazur, and in a year, when we have taken on even greater visibility as a university, I say again that we have nailed our colors to the mast. We have stated our principles of education based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and any deviation from it would lead to disastrous results." Close quote. As we take our increasingly significant and important place in the world, it is absolutely imperative that we not be of it. We have begun a space-age conversation with a national and international audience that earlier generations of students and faculty would not have believed possible. In telling that story, we must not and will not forget the principles and traditions and truths that have made Brigham Young University what it is and that have brought us to this very moment. In my occasional locker room contact with Coach Edwards, I have heard him say time and time and time again to his players that same thing. He said it last Saturday. He will say it this Saturday. What he says, in effect, is this. Do not forget what got you here. Don't abandon the fundamentals we've practiced for so long. Don't let success or adversity overwhelm you. Remain steady. Play it our way. That's how we got where we are. Now, in that same spirit, we have to be Brigham Young University and not any other. Any deviation from that would lead to disastrous results. Our majesty and our mission is in our unique and special heritage. Please stand with me as I stand with you in again nailing those colors to the mast for another magnificent year. Work hard. With the background of our religious convictions, there is no encouragement I can give you at the start of any school year that would matter more than for you to take your academic work seriously and to study hard. It is a more competitive time at BYU than it was 20 years ago, and certainly more than it was a century ago. There is so much to learn and so much to be done. There are worlds out there waiting to be explored. You must not come here to play. Too much tithing is spent. Too much sacrifice has been given. Too many people are watching. Eat the bread and wear the garments of the laborer. Please learn to write well and to speak the language with some precision. If it is not too startling to you, may I announce, for example, that at BYU the verb go is not synonymous with the verb say. 
As in the conversation, I go, what you doing? And she goes, nothing. And I go, let's do something. And she goes, sure. <laughs> That's too much going and not enough saying. <laughs> and too often, the writing from some of us is worse than the speaking. If I have one overwhelming disappointment in my professional life as an educator, it is the general inability I find in college-educated people to write well. The prophets of God have known that the impact of the inspired, compelling words, spoken or written, is among the most powerful forces on earth. Edward R. Murrow once said that Winston Churchill single-handedly won the Second World War by marshalling the English language and sending it into battle. Perhaps it will help you win a battle. In the beginning was the Word, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Be well-groomed and dress appropriately. Our dress and grooming standards are legendary at BYU. In the six years I've been giving this speech, I've tried not to harp on that or to make it seem that's the only thing that matters around here. It is, after all, only a small part of our very important code of honor, which you've all signed. But your appearance is for us, as some explain, baptism. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. I always notice carefully the comings and goings on campus during these first few days of each year, and I think almost all of you look absolutely beautiful. But a very few always need an early reminder. Now, all of you know that shorts or skimpy skirts or grubby jeans or extreme hairstyles or sweatsuits or tank tops or whatever are simply not acceptable apparel on this campus. Be modest, be dignified, and be your very best. More and more, what it means to be at BYU is to be your very best. Now may I say that far more important than looking clean is being clean. Perhaps no challenge is greater for your generation. As someone recently wrote, it is as if America is down on all fours sniffing and what she smells is a glandular stench. There is too much sexual transgression in our society. There are too many exploitive movies seen and prurient videos watched and smutty magazines read. There is too much obscene language used by men and women. It should not surprise you that a university which sweeps its walks and scrubs its floors and paints its buildings and shines its glass expects its students to be clean, inside as well as out. I want to think we're better in these matters than any other university in the world, but sometimes we're not. We frequently fall too short. Any compromise tears a piece of our flag from that mast. Any blemish on one student's behavior is a stain on us all. For your sake and Carl G. Mazur's and BYU's, I ask you to be clean. Now, as I began, I spoke of two events during the past week, and I mentioned one, the Discovery's successful flight. May I close with the second reference to another journey not so successful. A week ago last Sunday, September 1, 1985, Robert Ballard, chief scientist for a joint U.S.-French venture, became the first person in 73 years to view the graveside of more than 1,500 people whose final resting place lay on the cavernous floor two and a half miles below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. 
the Titanic, was the biggest, most luxurious, and supposedly the safest ocean liner of all time. Unsinkable, they advertised, because of its double steel hull and waterproof compartments. The first-class register on that maiden voyage read like a who's who of American and European society. The net worth of those passengers was estimated in 1912 to be $250 million. And on the night of April 14, 1912, nearly three-fourths of the trip from Southampton was complete. New York was, figuratively speaking, just a hop, skip, and a jump away. It had been a great party on the high seas. Now, an iceberg is relatively small and occupies so little space in comparison with the broad ocean on which it floats. The chances of another small object, like a ship, colliding with it and being sunk are minute. Chances are, as a matter of fact, one in a million. That is not just a figure of speech. That was the actual risk for total loss by collision with an iceberg, as accepted by insurance companies in 1912. That one-in-a-million accident was what sunk the Titanic. On the night of the collision, she was undoubtedly the safest ship afloat on any of the world's oceans. But her captain and her crew were careless, perhaps simply too confident. And so were her designers and her owners. The result was that when the unbelievable had to be believed, only 700 were saved. 1,513 of the others rode the ship, the world's safest ship, two and one-half miles straight down, and then waited 73 years to have Robert Ballard last week finally identify their burial site for posterity. Institutionally, and I suppose individually, we have at our disposal the superb skills that in its day fashioned the Titanic and in our own has fashioned the space shuttle discovery. We have before us a year in which each of us gets to captain not only his or her own individual craft, but also gets to help steer the good ship BYU. I don't know about you, but in light of these two reminders from the week's news, I vote clearly for the option of navigating all the dimensions of our dreams and all the outer reaches of our capability with the care and caution and loyalty to basic principles that will, when our exploration is complete, land us dead center right on time exactly where we ought to be. I prefer that greatly to the equal magnificence and the splendor and the technical ability of that other vessel now resting 13,000 feet below the surface of the sea, about 500 miles south of Newfoundland, filled with people who were led to believe it couldn't happen to them. This year and every year, we intend to have the best of all possible worlds at BYU. We intend to exercise every privilege and pursue every opportunity, but we will do it with discipline and with care, with attention to detail, with everyone helping, with no one compromising. We will nail our colors to the mast and make gospel-centered education work because it has to work. Any deviation from our prophetic heritage would lead to disastrous results. We will, in this and every year ahead, reach out and reach up 
explore all we can of the truth, and still safely land, filled with greater learning and faith, on this narrow strip of BYU soil under Y Mountain in Provo, Utah. We will do our work successfully, and some of it we will have to do with the whole world watching. God bless you to have a superb school year, and know that I love you with all my heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches and classic speeches, as well as BYU Speeches compilations on marriage and love, overcoming adversity, Joseph Smith, Come Follow Me, by Study and by Faith, and Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.